Hey everyone, this is Peter Levin, and you're listening to another episode of In Good Hands, a show about the companies and founders solving our climate crisis. Today, I interview Camille Richmond, co-founder and CEO of Hamama. Hamama's invented a fail-proof way for anyone anywhere to grow nutritious produce at home year-round. Think Square Roots and Freight Farms, guests that we've had on the show before. But instead of these massive shipping containers that are used to grow produce for larger customers like grocery stores and restaurants, they've translated all that technology and created a tiny portable consumer product that can live right within your home. And in the episode, Camille and I will discuss what exactly inspired the idea for her mama. The chapters that predate starting up, from doing research at MIT's Media Lab to being an engineer at the National Research Nuclear University in Moscow, Russia. We'll also discuss how Hamama works for the layperson and what's going on behind the scenes to make it all happen. Her thoughts on online versus offline distribution. And lastly, the one big idea rotting away in her idea graveyard. And before we jump into the episode, I just want to remind everyone that this show is made possible by our sponsor, EIS. EAS, which is short for Environmental Air Specialties, creates one of the industry's most effective air purifiers. So if you want to learn more about what they're about, just click into our episode description and see how you can save $500 on their flagship air purifier. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy this conversation with Camille Richmond, co-founder and CEO of Hamama. Camille, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks so much for having me, Peter. Excited to be here. Camille, let's break it down for the listeners. What is Hamama? Okay, let's get into it. So Hamama (laughs) is my company. So there uh, are two of us co-founders and an amazing team. Hi, guys. And we're all about making it incredibly easy for anyone to grow their own fresh, healthy microgreens at home year-round, and we've invented a pretty cool kit to make it incredibly easy so that it's actually a really simple thing to add into your everyday routine to be growing your own veggies. Camille, I'm fanboying pretty hard here because I think (laughs) y'all have landed what might be the best brand name I've Mm. heard in quite a long time. That is nice to hear. I mean it. It is so catchy. It's so easy to say. It's memorable. But before we get into how exactly Hamama works, I want to rewind to what you were doing before you started this company. What were you doing beforehand and then how did that lead to the Hamama Eureka moment? Yeah. My co-founder, Dan, and I were both mechanical engineers. We're students at MIT and we met doing research in larger scale, like indoor urban farming, hydroponic farming. We were growing all kinds of produce in the lab, building and operating these larger scale, maybe more like container size, shipping container size farms, and just getting super psyched about harvesting kale in the middle of a Boston blizzard. And and the power of indoor ag to be able to grow produce 
anywhere, no matter the season, grow closer to where it's going to be consumed, reduce food miles. Our food system is just absolutely incredible in its crisscrossing across the globe, which has done so much for us, but also now brings a lot of waste in some senses. And so we were really excited about indoor ag and saw a consumer interest in it as well in hydroponics, the cool lighting. It was just people lit up when they saw these crazy sci-fi indoor farms. And we learned that like one in three Americans already grows food in some capacity. Like it's such an inherent human interest, whether that's a basil plant or a huge raised bed garden. And so we thought, oh my goodness, if we could create this this way for consumers to do this at home in a meaningful, easy way, we could grow a significant amount of produce in a distributed model in people's homes and create an interesting chunk of our food production system. This resonates a ton. If, if you look at the In Good Hands catalog, we've had Bowery Farming, Square mm-hmm. Roots, Freight Farms, and while those are amazing, I am such a cheerleader on the sidelines for all of the above. I've been screaming for solutions to make it easy for individual, everyday people mm-hmm. to do the same thing right in their homes. And we got a taste of this. We had Avalo Gardens mm-hmm. on the show uh, a couple months back. And the You're notion of- You're all up of, in this industry. Love it. We're all up in it. And to <laughs> me, the, the big missing- Part of the entire ecosystem was the consumer product. Yeah. But actually, before we get into how exactly Homama works, I would love to hear the backstory on the name. I was freaking <laughs> out about it at the top. Like, how did you guys land on Homama? <laughs> yeah, it was a risk. We were we were really in love with the name, but we're going, okay, this is more maybe evocative. Should we go? What's the other one called? Like definitive where you just call it exactly what it is. And we like just the feel of it. Oh, Hamama, you got the mama, Mother Earth, nurturing. Our product is called the Seed Quilt, which has a similar like nurturing, blanketing feeling. But where the word comes from is that it means greenhouse in Hebrew and dove or bird or even pigeon in Arabic. And it's also a waterfall in Hawaii. So it just has all of these really beautiful uh, meanings, and then it's also a catchy word. I love it. Um, I just want to say like Hamama, Hamama. I just, it's so, it brings out the best. Our TV jingle me. writes itself, right? right? Not that I've written it yet, but I'm just like, I'm ready for it. There's it lots of opportunity. <laughs> That's so funny. Hamama positions itself as a fail-proof way for anyone, anywhere to grow nutritious microgreens at home year-round, like you just Mm -hmm. discussed. Now, if we look under the hood a little bit, break down just the 101 or the how-to for dummies. How does Hamama actually enable this? What's the technology? What's going on under the hood to make all this happen? Right. Yeah. So we really wanted this. We wanted to make it just crazy easy for anyone to grow, whether you're an expert gardener or a brand new gardener, like we didn't want it to matter. Just be like, cool, add water once, 
plant this seed quilt and we're good to go in a week we'll have a harvest so that was really we're so focused on like consumer experience and that really went into every aspect of the product design and the work we were doing before the aim was to get as close to automated kind of enclosed system as possible so we were using sensing and feedback loops to try to control the environment and that created that creates a great high-tech growing system like at a large scale like other businesses you've interviewed but on a consumer level we thought that was just extra complexity points of uh, potential failure we wanted to have that same level of automation but with just super passive automation so Family, let me get into what the product is. So the invention is the seed quilt where all of that automation we were doing before with sensing and computing is actually built into this new seed packaging. So the seed quilt combines the grow media and the seeds into this mess-free, streamlined package that controls the watering, humidity, and light access for growing microgreens so that all you have to do is add water once to our custom tray, put your seed quilt into the water, soak it, And then what happens is that the bottom layer, which is made of a coconut fiber mat, is wicking up the water gradually as it needs. The cover of the seed quilt is blocking out some of the light during the initial germination phase where the seeds need a darker and more humid environment. And so as the seeds are sprouting, they're pushing against that cover of the seed quilt, which also mimics a layer of topsoil, having that pressure helps to form strong, healthy plants. And as they push against the cover, it's converting it into this humidity dome so that it has humidity trapped inside. And then what you do, and it's people's favorite part because it's like a huge reveal, is you peel that cover off and then the greens have access to the ambient, more light-filled, less humid environment to finish out their growth phase. And then you harvest. So you can have a harvest of microgreens in about seven to 10 days. Wow. I think the two breakthroughs, at least I'm stepping into the consumer shoes and it's, I live here in New York city and I've been trying, I've been telling Tori, my fiance, I I really want to start gardening. It's impossible to do that here unless you have a backyard, which no one has, or some type of, I don't know, like outdoor patio of sorts. Mm -hmm. And when Amy introduced me to <laughs> to what you're working on. You actually both a you check both of the bo- boxes. A you enable people to make sure or satisfy that craving in a way that is clean. You take all the guess and check out of the work. Like you've mm-hmm. really streamlined what would be at least my anxieties for a newbie getting his mm-hmm. first start on gardening. But then three, there's also like clear benefits. Now I can utilize this produce that's grown here as fresh as can be and turn it into a number of different recipes. So for the listeners, maybe break down what are the different types of produce that Mm -hmm. I can grow with Hamama? And then I guess more broadly at it, more just a fun twist. You know, how are you seeing, how are you seeing people use the produce that they're growing? Yeah. First, I'm so psyched that you had that reaction and just saw immediately how it could solve some of your own, yeah, gardening challenges and thoughts. So that is awesome. To get into what the actual end produce that you get out of it is that we have 
a bunch of different varieties of microgreens that that you can grow with us. So we have seed quilts for 10 different varieties right now. So we're focused on the microgreens, which maybe first we should get into what exactly microgreens are, which is that they're just the baby or seedling versions of regular vegetables and herbs. So this is just basically, for example, take broccoli. You grow broccoli from seed in two to three days, it'll sprout and be sprout stage. Seven to 10 days, it'll be seedling stage or microgreen stage. About two weeks in, you'll have uh, something like kale, for example, or arugula, you have baby greens. And then depending on the growth cycle for something, eventually you'll get to that mature veggie phase that most of us are more familiar with, for example, broccoli florets. So this is the same, starting from the same seed, we're just eating it really young, eating the baby broccoli. That really messes up kids sometimes. They're like, no, I don't want to eat the baby broccoli, which is very cute and (laughs) empathetic. Um, But actually, kids love it because of the texture. You're missing out on the regular broccoli florid texture with microgreens, (laughs) which is great. For, For veggie haters, this is for you. So yeah, it's simply the baby version of regular veggies that we're already all familiar with. And they taste the same. And the, they're actually up to 40 times more nutritiously dense than the mature version of the veggie as well. So there have been some USDA studies that analyzed many different microgreen varieties and saw that on a mineral level, they're pretty comparable concentration-wise. And on the vitamin side, saw, like I said, up to 40 times more density than in the, the mature version. So it's a great way to just add a handful of these to literally any meal as a garnish. That's a most common way. Sandwiches, whatever you're having for dinner, pasta, stir fry, add some on top, get an extra punch of flavor and nutrition, an extra serving of veggies into your diet. And then there's also really fun ways to just make it really more meaningful part of a meal as well. So have a base salad made of microgreens, have it as your smoothie greens, so we have customers using it in all kinds of ways, but I would say the, the most popular is smoothie sandwiches and full-on salads. Wow. A couple quick questions. As you think about the different distribution opportunities for a company like Hamama, yeah. um, I know it seems like, just from what I'm seeing on the site, it seems like all or the majority of distribution happens direct to consumer. You pick what mm-hmm. you want and you get it shipped to you. But I, I can imagine a, there's a number of opportunities to bring this offline to big box, to other companies like Lowe's, Home Depot, maybe even doing some type of tangential like restaurant-oriented product that mm. lets them grow their microgreens within th- their own stores. So i uh, curious for you, how are you thinking about distribution and what what does the future of that look like for Hamama? Yeah, yeah. And I realized that I didn't get to what kinds of microgreens we offer. So I'll come back to that. Oh, yeah. Uh, maybe but... <laughs> start with that. Maybe start okay. with that. Different, so, And then we'll pivot to distribution. Yeah, yeah. We have those 10 varieties. So we have mild ones, spicy ones. We have broccoli, kale, cabbage. We have salad mixes, a kind of basic salad mix, and then a zesty mix that has mustard in it that's really good. We have a straight up hot wasabi mustard that if you love spice, you got to get that and the spicy daikon radish. You can almost just eat those right out of the tray. They're delicious. So something for everyone on the flavor side of things. And folks will even just be 
like I said, eating them right out of the tray. They're super tasty, really great way to get your greens. And to now go into the onto the distribution question, we're probably like 95% direct to consumer right now through our e-commerce site, pamama.com. And that is, I think it's the distribution method will always have a big element of the business being direct to consumer, I think, because I think it's a really important part of the product and the mission is, and the notion of this hyper distributed model of food production. And the thought that if you want uh, fresh, healthy microgreens that you can grow them no matter, you know, where you live, how close you are to a grocery store, we love that we can be somewhat removed from the existing food distribution system and hopefully eventually have an impact on reach for fresh produce, which is a, a huge and important problem. So we love having that direct uh, to consumer model and of course, just being so connected to our customers. But I think retail is really interesting, a way to find even more people because there's people who don't yet shop on online yet. And I think it does make a lot of sense to see this in a big box store or at a grocery store. So it is definitely part of our strategy, but I think we have a lot more room to grow and direct to consumer. So that's still our big focus for now. I love it. It makes a lot of sense too. You want to make sure you nail online before um, you start spreading yourself too thin in between two of you co-founders, a small team. Mm-hmm. It makes a ton of sense. How on, on the online distribution side of things, what have you seen is the most effective way to get Hamama's story out there? How, how are you thinking about building awareness, building a new audience, meeting customers where they are? What's been the strategy there so far? Yeah. Oh, man, it's really evolved. At first, we were really getting our really learning how to tell our story. And we were doing a lot of the unscalable things, which are just so important for those initial learnings. We were selling at farmers markets every single weekend on both Saturdays and Sundays. And that was wonderful because we were able to see repeat customers every week sometimes and hear that direct feedback and maybe adjust our messaging or adjust the the instructions a little bit. And, that, and get a first really psyched customer base. And so did a lot of that and then did garden club presentations all around the Bay Area, rotary club presentations, just any, anyone that would listen to us basically and really built our both customer base and network up by doing those things. And then at a certain point, it was organic because we would hear, oh, you guys should really be online. You should have a subscription. Like I, I'm probably not going to be here next week and I want, I'm going to want my seed quilts. And so I feel like things happen pretty, customers tell you what you want to see and you have to be open and to hearing it and listening. Of course, we have our, our theories and directions that we want to go. And we were interested in the e-com subscription, but I think I've always been like, ew, subscriptions. Are people really, people think, Oh, subscriptions, they're going to lock me in. So we're very flexible with that. But that just gave us the courage uh, to go for it. 
And now we're, and then we just really focused, like you said, small team, you want to find what you're, find your biggest opportunity, really maximize it, really get to know it. And so that's become e-com. So we really got started scaling the, the subscription side with sending samples out through Instagram at first, and then really started getting the machine of social ads running, referral program, affiliate, and eventually it just layers together and you have a good marketing mix and it never ends. We're still going. Wow. This is amazing. And I think it's funny for the listeners, you you couldn't tell because Camille, you're being super humble, but if, if you go even just to Hamama's Instagram, 44,000 followers, right? From <laughs> the the weekly grind of the farmer's market to now building what is going to be, can and will be a very meaningful company financially from an impact perspective. When it comes Thank to supporting you. all of these functions, did you and your co-founder uh, raise a round of equity financing? Is it bootstrapped? How have you been able to put all of this together? I mean, look at these products. These are like a lot of like complexity that is happening behind the scenes to, to make it all happen. Yeah. Um, so how did you go th- think about capital and supporting your vision from day one? Yeah. Yeah. So it's really been so many people and I'm so grateful. We started out of my co-founder Dan's parents' garage, typical garage story. So you know, yeah. took over for prototyping, for building our production process, everything. So Dan's, Dan's family's house became home base and was very low burn for that reason for a while while we figured things out. And so that was huge for us. And then once we were ready to really go for it and start growing the business, we were looking at kind of equity raises. We were really excited to build a fast growing startup, reach people fast and have this impact and scale as soon as possible. And while maintaining kind of the quality to the product and the mission at the same time. And so we ended up We started with a friends and family raise, so just even more love and support, so lucky. Then went into 500 startups, which was awesome for us. That really kicked us off, used loans, had lenders that really believed in us, and then now have gone into kind of the larger equity route. But I think have been pretty, because we've at the same time built a customer base and, and revenue and been really kind of data-driven and around how much to push and when on the growth side of things, uh, have been able to build a business that is maybe more cash conscious than some. Um, But I think the tides are turning on that. That's now like a requirement, more of a requirement nowadays to be more cash conscious. But we had that Mm -hmm. built in, luckily. Wow. Camille, I'm so impressed by how much y'all have been able to accomplish in just you know a couple years, I, I want to zoom out to the mm-hmm. industry at large, and I'm p- particularly interested in your perspective given how much you did on the research side mm-hmm. before starting Hamama, and now as a founder amongst probably a cohort of other founders at 500 startups, 
I want to give you the opportunity to shout out maybe another startup or two that's working on some type of key climate problem area. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be in food or agriculture. It can be anywhere. But just within your purview, what have you seen that's just super interesting? Could be super early stage, could be later stage, but anyone that you want to shout out, passing the torch to you. Oh man, interesting. That's a great one. Let's see. Let me do my 500 startup buddies who are awesome. They're in the latest batch and I am super excited to start using their system. But I think one thing, especially in e-commerce is even if you have this product, a product with great packaging that can be composted, biodegraded, recycled, that shipping factor is still really big and something that can keep you up at night if you're a founder in doing kind of climate forward, you know, have that part in your mission. And we do like carbon offsetting with a group called Pachama, who has this reforestation verification technology Mm -hmm. that I think is solving some of those things that the lack of transparency in like carbon footprint offsetting. And then, so Pachama is one, and then EcoCart is my 500 startups buddy company where they're giving consumers the opportunity to offset the carbon footprint of any shipment just straight within your cart. So oh, I think I saw that. Oh, yeah? I think they just launched on Product Hunt, right? Oh, yes, I think they did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I love that. Let me see. Some other companies we've looked towards imperfect produce in the Bay Area, getting into the food side of food specific side of things. I think there's so much waste and there's so much opportunity to be more thoughtful with what we already have before or simultaneously with inventing a new. So yeah. Hell yeah. Before we part or segue to the last part of the interview, I just want to do a quick lightning round. When I was doing some research before the interview, and we glossed over it when we kicked off, but your background really is super friggin' cool. And (laughs) one of the accolades that I, I would love to hear your take on was one of your TED Talks. So in 2016, you were a speaker at TEDx Brussels, and the talk is called How to Download Your Food. What does that mean and what was that about? <laughs> yeah, so that was about the research that I was doing for my undergrad thesis and then continued to do after graduating. And it was really about creating this. So we were doing larger scale farming and getting to grow all this produce indoors, learning how to grow all kinds of crops hydroponically and aeroponically and then started working on this research project where the main idea was to accelerate these questions that a lot of people in the industry are asking around, okay, you can grow food indoors in a really controlled manner. How can a change in temperature or humidity or light or quality of that light affect the crop expression, whether that be 
flavor or yield. And I think your freight farms interview covered some of that um, Mm -hmm. thinking. And so we were like, okay, if you can create this standard platform where it's a box and you can input all of these kind of characteristics of a climate recipe and see what happens to the crops on the other side. And if folks all around the world could build these and crowdsource this data, essentially, then one day you could send that recipe across the world and someone else could effectively download that same bunch of kale that you grew in Sacramento and have that exact replica in your apartment in New York. So that's the clickbait was how to download your food, but <laughs> but it's, that is uh, so neat. Yeah, yeah. So that is a little deeper dive into the light bulb moment for Hamama too. Was that we'd created this desktop research platform that was totally not a consumer product. Like it was very complex. Still had a lot of work to be done on it, and. But folks saw it and were like, oh my gosh, a robo garden. I don't know how to grow food. I could fit that in my house. Like, when can I buy it? And we were very clear on, okay, this isn't the consumer product, but wow, there's this interest. Like, we could make the consumer product that actually makes sense. Wow. That is so freaking cool. Another super interesting chapter in your professional story so far is engineering at the National Research Nuclear University in Moscow, Russia, <laughs> which sounds super mad scientisty. <laughs> what the hell did that entail? That was amazing. That was one of the coolest parts of MIT was the the work abroad that I got to do. So, like study abroad isn't as big there, but like internships and uh, research positions abroad are during the winter breaks or the summer breaks. So I took full advantage. And Moscow was this amazing experience. I spent a summer at this university, I had been getting really into nuclear engineering and just my side interest coursework during school, and did some research there on uh, kind of a crossover between materials science and nuclear engineering. And we wrote a paper about best ways to braze x-ray tube anodes. So it was fun. I got to do a lot of brazing. Wow. (laughs) One more question to just to piggyback off of that. I know MIT is pioneering what appears to be the, the leading or the most promising is it fission or fusion technology? Fusion. I don't know. Fusion. You Big were news. as a, right. So your research specialist at MIT Media Lab. Did you have exposure to the team there, to the work there? It's got you've got you must have you know popped your head in as someone who has already <laughs> like an academic interest. Did did you yeah. get any any insight there or get to work with any of the the fellows um, tinkering on that project? You know, not directly, though I recognize a few of the people who are working directly on that project, because as I understand, it's they're doing a joint research effort between the MIT nuclear department and this, this startup called Commonwealth Fusion or something like that. So I recognize some of the people, but I was like a 
I was dipping my toes into the nuclear engineering department and took a few classes there and got to TA a class too, which was really fun and got to tour some of the labs and tour the MIT research reactor. So yeah, I would say I dipped mm-hmm. my, t- I, I saw, I've seen more of the department than most because it's very small compared to like mechanical engineering or electrical engineering at MIT, but yeah, only a light touch. It's sure. very exciting news. My, you might have a biased perspective here, I, I would imagine, but obviously nuclear as uh, an energy source of the future, or for now, quite practically, has been super politicized. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm sure Chernobyl from HBO didn't help much. Terrifying show, as it should be. <laughs> exactly. But my, I guess my question for you is, if, if you were to tell a layperson why you're bullish on nuclear as the energy source of the future or why we should be more open-minded to this like what's the what's your broad strokes take on shifting someone's perspective to that possibility or at least priming them for why it's worth exploring seriously yeah oh my gosh yeah, I think there's a lot of, it, it sounds pretty scary, and it is pretty scary. There have been horrible accidents. And on one level, I think there's just so much fear. And I don't want to negate that. Of course, there are risks, but there are risks in almost every type of energy production that we, that we already use. So I think It's a part of, I think it's a part of a future robust energy industry. And I think the thing that I would say to the lay person around the technology that one of my professors would tell us is that it's basically the most complicated way to boil water, (laughs) but it's incredibly efficient and clean in ter- yeah clean of course there's the waste product issues and, and concerns there but yeah I would say comparing it to the other the alternatives and the status quo it should definitely be considered as part of a mix mm-hmm. yeah look at us we've gone from growing microgreens to nuclear energy that's what you get <laughs> this is a warning to future guests be, be ready yeah, to run dude, the gamut Peter, i would have i would have studied my nuclear courses <laughs> <laughs> oh um, my gosh keeping me on my toes not so much for a lightning round but if you have any more hit me <laughs> right um what i love doing at the end of the interview is to explore what I call the idea graveyard. And what I mean by that is everyone has a a note in their notes app, maybe somewhere else where you have this list of ideas that either A, at one point you thought were great, but in hindsight were pretty bad, or B, you'd love to work on, you just don't have the time to do so. My question for you is, what are one of these ideas that you love to work on if you had the time to do, but for the time being, it's just rotting away in your idea graveyard. Ooh, good one. Let's see. I'm really interested in like waste management 
because I think on the consumer level, so little of what could be recycled or composted actually gets recycled or composted. And I think the industry and companies, we need to be doing more to be making that easier and infrastructure wise. So I'm really interested in maybe the next one, doing something on the infrastructure side, making compostable more easily accessible for everybody, recycling. So that's something just on my wish list. Uh Oh, man. Camille. Yeah? We talked about it it a couple episodes ago. One of the ideas that I've been tinkering on is also in this world of composting because I can't tell you enough. So I live in this big New York City apartment building. Right across from our front door is a trash room. Mm -hmm. So you can dump your trash down a chute and then they have two bins, one for paper and another for everything else that can Mm -hmm. be recycled, quote unquote. And it it seems to me, you could think of all these kind of sophisticated sorting systems and think about solving it that way. But to me, like what really easy, not easy, but something that I think should exist is Mm -hmm. why not have one more chute that is designed for composting, right? It's all going to go down to the same centralized location in the basement, mm-hmm. but just create one more chute for the hundreds of residents that live here that you can just throw your food down. Yes. And it, 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 I don't think it needs to be any more sophisticated than that. Y- yes, I, I'm not saying that there there shouldn't be – we shouldn't lean on technology to improve how we sort things and make – Wait, maybe consumer waste management solutions like trash bins smarter, but this one feels like just add one more chute where I can yeah. throw down my food and it would be a no-brainer. Yes. Yeah. But then that's where the infrastructure side comes in. It's We don't yet have those. It's not built into every Building. city that uh-huh. is – we've basically done it for recycling, but then still what happens with that recycling is up for grabs. So that collection aspect for the the composting just isn't there yet. You're right. Mm -hmm. So composting pickup for all, heck yeah. And I guess question for you, I've always thought, all right, so let's say, yes, we convince 20 big buildings in New York City to add these types of shoots to the building infrastructure. Who are the typical buyers of composted goods? Mama? Be a potential buyer yeah. to get the first. What, like, where does it go next? Out of here, I don't know if you were there, but I would imagine this is this uh, yeah. soil so, and stuff, right? Yeah, compost is rich, like really valuable soil in itself, or as a supplement. So farmers, and then there's several companies that will bag compost that you find at you know Home Depot, Lowe's those big bags of soil that then a home gardener will use as well. So it's, yeah, there's totally a market for it on the other end. Mm-hmm. Camille, this, I, I don't want to distract you, but all I'm saying is if you're trying to add another startup to your to your <laughs> No, man, <laughs> let's do it. <laughs> yeah. Um. Camille, there's nothing left to do but roll the red carpet. Are there any final call to actions, hiring needs, anything that you want to leave with our listeners? The floor is yours. Oh, man. Thank you. Yes, to you. Thank you for giving me this opportunity. This has been wonderful. 
I want to say maybe to the listeners, hope you're doing okay right now. And thanks for tuning in. And you can find us at hamama.com. If you have any other questions for me, hit that contact button. We have a live chat. Would love to see you growing with us and eating more veggies with us and taking care of yourself. So yeah, and lastly, just shout out to Team Hamama and Hamama Friends community. Just so grateful to all of you for making it possible for me to do this and to keep going and spreading greens all around the land. Uh, Hamama represent. (laughs) Camille, congrats again on all your success so far. I am such a super fan. I can't wait for Tori and I to, to start using product number one. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me, Peter. Bye. Hey there, you made it to the outro. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. If you're new here, welcome. If you're a longtime listener, thank you so much. We're actively casting for new guests on our show. So if you have a rock star founder or company in mind that's working on something cool, message me on Instagram at Peter A. Levin. Or email us, hello at ingothands.us. Thank you so much again, and look forward to bringing you another new episode next Tuesday.